What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Happy Friday to you. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? You've been trying to figure out, uh, how do I get this question answered? I just don't understand this one particular thing about the Catholic faith. We can help you with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. I do recommend that you call early because on Fridays, the phones tend to fill up rather quickly. And, uh, you know, Monday, we're going to be bringing you a mailbag program uh, because uh, we'll be closed for Martin Luther King uh, remembrance. So if you want to Get that question answered today instead of on Tuesday. Call now, 833-288-EWTN. If you're listening to us in Ethiopia, we would love to help you with a special phone number just for you folks, 1-205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both platforms. Look for the comments box. That's where you want to put your question. Rich will see it. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can get that question answered for you on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, I was only half listening in the intro. Did you welcome specifically our Ethiopian listeners? I did. You know, I'm really getting a kick out of this, the way you're you're singling out a particular region or nation of the world in every every day. I started with A. Oh, is that right? I think that was Australia, and then B was Brazil, C was, uh, I I think, Colombia, D was Denmark, and now today, Ethiopia. Well, yesterday you did France. Oh, then I skipped Ethiopia. You skipped Ethiopia. Coming back to it. Coming back to it. (laughs) Will we do Ghana on Tuesday? If you'd like. I'd be delighted to do. uh, All right. Here is an email from Karen in Connecticut. Hi, Tom and Dr. Anders. In recent years, my sister has felt a call back to Christianity. She currently goes to a non-denominational Christian church, but she feels very much alone. While on the one hand, she feels more at home, She is now very worried about her Jewish family. Her husband says he and their children are Jewish, and that will not change. Additionally, she carries a crippling guilt due to a failure to lay a faithful foundation for her now college-aged kids. What does the Bible say about this? How would you suggest encouraging faith in this two-faith household? I want to reassure her from a Catholic faith-based perspective but I'm really not quite sure where to begin. And again, that's from Karen in Connecticut. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I can tell you what the Catholic position on this is, and it may be different from her evangelical church. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and the evangelical church, the non-denominational church she's going to, my experience with those is that they do tend to load more guilt onto you about how you comport yourself with your non-Christian relatives than does the Catholic church. So let me explain why that is. In the, in the Catholic world, we believe that the way we are united to God is through charity. 
that ultimately we are to be remade in the likeness and image of God that we lost in the fall of Adam. And that means fundamentally living a life of virtue characterized especially by charity, the love of God and neighbor, the selfless giving of oneself to, to other persons uh, and, uh, and ultimately to the person of God. And while Christ models that self-sacrifice for us perfectly and makes available to us the teaching of the church and the sacraments of the church as the most efficacious way mm-hmm. of, uh, of realizing that, that personal transcendence, that transformation in charity, the church also teaches that there are elements of the church's mission and teaching that you can find in other traditions. You, you don't find the whole package, but you find elements. Okay. And those elements can be occasions of sanctification, mm-hmm. redemption, and salvation for other people. And so we never we don't look at anybody from any tradition and say, I know for sure you're going to hell. We, we don't do that, right? And so if I'm in a relationship with a Jewish person, if I'm married to a Jewish woman, for example, or have Jewish children, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on those elements of the Jewish tradition that, that I have in common with Catholicism and trust that those can be means of sanctification and redemption for my Jewish relatives. I'm not—obviously, I'm, I'm going to live my Catholic faith— expressly and explicitly and openly, and I'm willing to dialogue about it and invite people to consider it, mm-hmm. but I don't feel the need to proselytize. I don't feel like if you know if I don't get them to convert to Catholicism, then they're going to hell, and that's my fault. Right? That's, that's not the Catholic attitude. We evangelize, we don't proselytize. Um, and so uh, I, historically, uh, converts from Judaism to Catholicism definitely have happened, uh, you know, in the last eighteen hundred years, but um, but it's a you know it's not the majority. It's kind of a trickle rather than a flood, and and I don't want to condition my relationship on somebody with someone, you know, on the predicated on the idea that they are they have to become Catholic. So I would uh, she needs to unburden herself with respect to the guilt, and get on about the business of living her Christian faith joyously and freely. Always open, always ready to explain sure. the hope that's in her. And, mm-hmm. of course, if people take an interest, then, yeah, absolutely, she can bring them to the church and introduce them to Jesus, but but not beat herself up because, you know, she was unsuccessful in converting them. Karen, thanks so much for your email. This one from Michelle. Dr. Andrews, the Catechism in paragraph 1226 indicates that the sacrament of baptism has been celebrated since Pentecost, but we read about the disciples baptizing in John 3.22. Is this the same baptism since Jesus has not had not yet bestowed the gift of the Holy Spirit? I'm confused. Thanks for your time, Michelle. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think a, a better way of conceiving it would be that it's at Pentecost. We talk about Pentecost being the birth of the church. Uh-huh. And that's that's really when the universal mission of Christ, the kingdom of God spread to all nations, is fully manifest. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the significance of the speaking in tongues and other languages. It signals the universality of the call of the gospel and and uh, really sort of raking in the converts, you know, by the thousands. Um, but there was a kind of seed of the church that existed, of course, in the company of the apostles um, with uh, with the baptism of Christ. So, so it's not the absolute first time a Christian baptism is ever performed on the day of Pentecost. Okay. Well, uh, Michelle, we thank you so much for your email. By the way, if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones, and we've got wide open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. This is a great time to call 833-288-EWTN. 3986. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon on EWTN. 
It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Do you get wings every week from EWTN? Well, it is our EWTN weekly e-newsletter. You can find out about EWTN radio and TV shows items from EWTN Religious Catalog, and so much more. If you would, you know, these generally go out on a Thursday morning. I opened up mine on Thursday morning, and I read all about our brand new program starting up on Monday, Monday, which is, of course, a Bible in a Year, Catechism in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz. Very excited about that. And uh, you can find out about all the new programming coming to EWTN. Sign up for Wings at EWTN.com. Click on the word subscribe. EWTN.com. Click on subscribe. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We're beginning today with Josh in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Josh, happy Friday to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I was just curious. Um, so if you if you are a Catholic and say I'm not I'm not married, um, this is just like a hypothetical situation that people were discussing the other day, and I didn't really have the answer to. So I was curious what uh, you guys thought. So to say, like the man is Catholic, he marries uh, his wife in the church, um, and then after. Um, after you know a few years go on, and the the woman gets into her forties, and she decides that you know for health reasons, but also because she no longer wants to have children, um, you know, throw in the wrench of you know irregular cycles. So you know she doesn't necessarily buy into NFP those types of things, and then she decides to go and and like I don't know uh, get her fallopian tubes cut or whatever the actual medical term is and not uh you know i'm not real versed in those things what is the what is the position of the of the church in the sense that the like the woman's not catholic but like she's married to a catholic like is the is the man like morally culpable for his wife doing that like even right. if he, i understand the like question I understand the question. Thank you so much. So first of all, one thing to get straight is that moral theology is the same whether you are a Catholic or not. So it's not like murder is wrong for Catholics, but, you know, it's it's okay for Satanists. No, it's, <laughs> it's wrong for everybody. Sure, okay? So sure. sexual ethics work the same way. If, if something is intrinsically immoral, it's because of the nature of the human person, not because of the Catholic faith specifically. So, so it's, it's wrong regardless of whether you're Catholic or not. Now, your question is more specifically about the husband's culpability. If the wife makes a decision about her body and sterilization, mm-hmm. is the husband culpable? It depends on the nature of his cooperation. So let's say, for example, that uh, the husband is, uh, uh, says, well, you know, the Catholic faith says you shouldn't do that. But in the back of his mind, he's thinking, but gosh, that'd be awful convenient. And he's sort of uh, mentally egging his wife on. He might be verbally saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. But, but in his heart of hearts, he's like, yeah, man, let's get that thing done. You know, and then we, don't, we can not have any consequences to our sexual activity. Uh-huh. At that point, he's really willing, in his heart of hearts, he's really willing, he's intending that evil outcome. And that's what we call formal cooperation with evil. If you desire the evil outcome... Mm-hmm. then uh, that's never allowable. You can never do anything to bring about or to will to bring about an evil. Right? Formal cooperation is always wrong. 
But let's say the husband is is uh, is sincere in his Catholic faith, and he's committed to the truth of the Catholic Church and the teaching of the Catholic Church, and he really does not will for his wife to do this thing, and uh, he he doesn't want to participate, and he says, "No, I I don't I don't concede. I don't want you to do this thing," um, and uh, and she says, "Well, I'm going to do it anyway," um, and he says, um, "Well, okay. Well, if you're going to do it anyway, then." Um, then uh, look, I know a guy. He's a good uh, obstetric surgeon, and and um, you know I'll go get the money out of the bank, and and uh, you know we'll make sure the insurance covers it, and uh, and I'll drive you there, and you know I'll I'll really make sure these things goes off smoothly. Well, now he's he's doing what you call material cooperation, and and he may not be willing the outcome but mm-hmm. he's really facilitating the outcome even though he doesn't will it yeah. now what the church says about material cooperation in evil is this that there are times when a person can licitly cooperate in evil materially if that cooperation is remote like far away and an example would be say the the uh, uh, the gun manufacturer who 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 makes a hunting rifle um, and then some criminal uses it to commit murder. Well, the manufacturers, he, he participated, he created the weapon, but it's pretty far away from the action. Yeah. He's not responsible. Uh, proximate cooperation, that's cooperation that's way up close, would be like the nurse in an abortion clinic who says, well, I personally am opposed to abortion, but when the doctor asks for the scalpel, scalpel I hand it right over. Right? She doesn't give a pass. That, that's too close. It's too mm. proximate. And so she's morally culpable. Okay. In the case of the husband, it'd be a little bit harder, I think, be, just because of the nature of the marital relationship, to draw the exact hard line between proximate and remote cooperation. But there definitely would be a—if a, a, he doesn't cooperate, he doesn't want to be a participant, doesn't want the wife to do it, he can definitely be innocent. Now, there, you know, he, he could find a way to make himself guilty, is my point. But if he's remote from it, he's not guilty. He's not responsible. And, uh, and it's a shame because it's going to be a wound in the heart of his marriage, but he's not morally responsible for that. Is that helpful for you, Josh? Yes, thank you. And, I, and I'm sorry for my long-winded question. No, that's okay. I, I that's good. No You're problem. Good. Josh, thanks so much for your call from uh, Nebraska. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this rather chilly Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Joe in Oakdale, Pennsylvania, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? I hear the term a lot, non-denominational church. What is a non-denominational church? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So from the beginning of Christianity, um, most Christians have understood that Jesus founded a distinct institution called the Church, and that it was necessary to belong to the Church, and that you could defect from the Church, you could be outside of the Church, and that was a bad place to be. And uh, the, the terminology we use to describe that is one holy Catholic and apostolic Church, the one singular institution uh, characterized by the holiness of the saints and the sacraments, um, uh, what did I say? One holy Catholic. Yes, Catholic means universal. That means it sort of covers the globe. Apostolic meaning that it stands in continuity to the, with the apostles through apostolic succession. And that's the ideal, that everybody belongs to that institution. And as Roman Catholics, we believe that that is 
manifest in those churches that are in communion with the Bishop of Rome, who's the Pope, right? Uh, but throughout Christian history, there have also been groups that have said, no, we're the one holy and apostolic church. <laughs> not you guys, not you Catholic folks, not you Roman Catholic people, but us. And, uh, and, and so there have been disputes about where the real church lies. In the 16th century, when the Protestant Reformation exploded onto the scene, uh, most of the Protestant reformers, that would be Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ehrlich Zwingli, Cranmer, Henry VIII, they continued to believe in the idea of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. They, they didn't think that Christianity should be split into different families. They thought there was one visible institution that was the church, but each of them thought that their community was that thing. And so they saw people outside of their community as cut off from redemption. Uh, famously, a big split in the 16th century among Protestants was between, say, the Calvinists on the one hand and the Anabaptists on the other. Those are the the, the, the uh, ancestors of your Mennonites and your Amish, for example. Oh, okay. And, um, and cl the Calvinists clearly thought that if you were an Anabaptist, you were going to hell because you weren't part of the church, which mm -hmm. they said was their group. Okay. Yeah. Now, w what happened within Protestantism is that every few years— some new Protestant group would pop up and say, we're the church. <laughs> and, and it began to strain credibility tremendously. The, the whole idea of a singular visible institution within Protestantism became, um, uh, became uh, difficult to hold because they all, they all claimed to base themselves on the Bible, and yet they had literally today there's you know, 50,000-plus different Protestant denominations. Uh, denomination meaning these different disparate families of Protestant churches all claiming to be the one church. Okay. Um, in the 18th century, finally you begin to get Protestant thinkers that say, you know what, maybe there isn't just one visible church. Maybe that, that idea of Catholicity is unworkable because we can't really agree on anything. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe it's all just flavors of ice cream. Uh, and, you know, you, you say Baptist, I say Methodist, he says Episcopalian, he says Presbyterian, but, you know, we all love Jesus. and It's all ice cream. It's all just ice cream, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and that's when you begin to see the emergence of what we call denominationalism, an ideology that says these divisions within Christendom don't really matter. Uh, but again, the term denomination within that context refers to these visible associations you know, of churches that have their own distinct traditions, whether they trace back to Luther for Lutheranism or Calvin to Calvinism mm -hmm. or, say, the Wesleys to Methodism, the Baptists trace back to a guy named John Smith. And, uh, and so they have these little distinct traditions, right? Uh, when we talk about denominations, we're talking about those distinct families of churches that have these origins within Protestantism. Now, okay. all right. when you get in the 18th century, when you get the idea emerging that, hey, it's all flavors of ice cream— and you, you have an, uh, an explicit ideology of denominationalism, then you get something called non-denominationalism mm. as a reaction against denominationalism, right? Okay. And non-denominationalism, if you will, is the idea that we don't trace ourselves back to anything, right? That we are just a, a singleton church, a, 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 a one congregation standing alone without having to trace ourselves in any kind of historic continuity to any, to any antecedent tradition. Now, that's actually impossible to do because there's a tradition of people who reject tradition, right? There's a tradition, there's a habit, there are cultural habits of people who say we're, we're this, you know, singleton group. And so 
today's non-denominational churches that aren't affiliated with, say, the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Catholics or the uh-huh. Episcopalians, all tend to have a kind of family resemblance to one another, right? They tend to f- sort of clump into doctrinal categories. And so they form, as I regard them, a kind of quasi-denomination. Ah, okay. So that, that's a long history to the, uh, you know, what is a denomination? Where do they come from? What does it look like when you reject the principle of denominationalism? Uh, non-denominational churches would be these modern sort of singleton, one-off churches that reject any association with some historic Protestant group. Joe, thanks so much for your call from Oakdale, PA. It's called Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. A most excellent time to call us, 833-288-3986. Here's a question from Eleanor. Dear Call to Communion team, how do I respond to a family member who is a part of the LGBTQ movement and who insists that the Bible does not contain the truth regarding relationships. To elaborate, she states that we cannot prove the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and thus the restrictions against same-sex relationships are incorrect. So far, our interactions have been cordial, but I try to avoid discussing such topics. I do love my family member, but how do I reply from a theological perspective? Thank you, Eleanor. Um, yeah, Rice, I really appreciate the um uh, the question. So the the difficulty I think with the conversation that you're having, in my judgment, is that it is predicated on the question of biblical inspiration. Right? Your relative thinks that that the your position on morality is reducible to say what the Bible teaches. Hmm. And I I I once wrote an article about this problem for the Call to Communion website, and it was the it was about how Protestantism. And the Protestant idea of the Bible alone, or sola scriptura, really does a lot of harm to the public discourse about sexual morality and marriage, right? Because within Protestant, the, Protestantism, the idea is the only way you can know what's right or wrong or moral or immoral is to consult the Bible. And so if you're talking to someone, to an interlocutor, who doesn't believe the Bible, well, then you've got nothing to say to them. Yeah. Right? If the Bible's the only thing, then you, they don't believe the Bible, you've got nowhere to go, right? But that's never been the Catholic position. The Catholic position is you can know right and wrong without reference to the Bible. Now, the Bible does clarify it, but you don't have to have the Bible to know right and wrong. You know, I mean, right. uh, you can find the golden rule in nearly every civilization. Sure. Um, I've, there, there has, I, there's, I have yet to find the human culture that values cowardice, for example, right? Um, and when it comes to questions of uh, human sexuality— the vast majority of human civilizations, I mean, I can think of one or two historic exceptions, but almost every human civilization recognizes something like the primacy of the male-female procreative union institutionalized into what we call marriage. And that's not something that was derived from revelation. It's not something that we learned from the Bible. It's something we learned from human nature. And this is what we call natural law, that there are, there are moral realities that emerge from the nature of the human person as such, and and not just from revelation. So I don't really want to have an argument about whether or not the Bible is inspired with an LGBTQ activist. I'd rather have a conversation about nature, about human nature, about mm. human sexuality, uh-huh. about the good of children, and uh, the 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 place where the conversation about human sexuality breaks down is that our our modern LGBTQ friends want to make it about 
personal autonomy, personal choice, personal will, personal gratification, personal aggrandizement. And, and that deflects the conversation from the biological reality that sex is where babies come from. And that the moral demands of sexuality have mostly to do with the care and raising of children and where babies come from. And it's a monogamous marriage being the best place for those kids to grow up and, and know their biological parents. Eleanor, thanks so much. We hope that the uh, conversation goes well with you and your family member. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. So, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We have a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is Noreen now in Wyoming, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey there, Noreen, what's on your mind today? Hi, um, I just have this thought and a question. So... Before I was Catholic, I had gotten saved one time, and I really spent a lot of my life being on fire for God and always having this urgency to get people saved. And and it was really real. But then I became Catholic mainly because it's intelligent and it's the truth. But then my priest, when he was going to confirm me, he took a long time till he finally confirmed me. Because I, I did, I was baptized in Holy Communion Catholic when I was young. But anyway, um, so now I don't, I, I don't know if it's lack of love or what it is, but I'm not all, always trying to get somebody to join the Catholic Church, I barely ever want to waste my effort in, or even think they have good enough character to even want them in my church. So what has changed? Are we chosen to be Catholic? Yeah. Or- Thanks, Maureen. I really appreciate the question. So, so here's here's one thing that I that I don't think you should do. I don't think you should try to reason to the mind of God from your own religious emotions. Like I wouldn't say, you know, I used to have a kind of powerful motive to convert people, and now I don't. The fact that I don't want to means that God doesn't want me to. Right? I, you shouldn't you shouldn't start with your emotional response and then conclude something about the mind of God. But um. I, let me talk a little bit about evangelism, a little bit about the vocation of being a Catholic. The I used to be a non-Catholic, kind of like you used to be non-Catholic, and I used to also really try to get people to join my church and to get saved the, the way you used to. And you know what I wasn't doing when I was out there trying to get people saved? I wasn't trying to get myself saved because mm. I thought I was already saved. I had invited Jesus into my heart. I'd believed Christ, all that good stuff. I thought I was saved. So I was going to go about getting other people saved. When I became Catholic, what I realized is I can't presume on my own salvation that way. I have to work out my salvation in fear and trembling, Scripture says. And my primary job as a Christian is to strive for the sanctification of my own soul. 
Jesus tells me to take the log out of my own eye before I take the splinter out of my neighbor's. And that the best way I can be of service to my neighbor is by being the best version of myself. And it is far more important for the kingdom of God that, say, I develop the virtue of humility than that I become a very persuasive evangelist who can convince anyone of the truth of the Catholic faith. It's much more important that I develop the virtue of humility, of chastity, of prudence, of justice, all the rest of it. If I do that, if my emphasis is on becoming a saint, to become perfect, Christ says, as our Father in heaven is as perfect, that's my goal in life. That's my vocation, is to perfection, to the imitation of Christ, to self-sacrificial love. I will be vastly more effective as an evangelist, vastly more effective for the kingdom of God than, than, uh, than somebody who who is effective at proselytizing and getting people to, you know, cross the threshold. And that's the way that Christ himself operated. Jesus did not count the success of his ministry in terms of the number of converts that he attracted. In fact, he is conspicuous for having let people walk away from him and of speaking in a really enigmatic manner designed to confuse. Matthew 13 says that Christ taught in parables so that people would not understand him. He was really only interested in reaching the people who, you know, who, uh, who were ready to live his mode of life. Right? So that's what I need to do. Not, not necessarily be confusing, but, yeah. I need to, but I need to focus on having the character of Jesus, and like Jesus, loving the poor, loving the marginalized, um, lo- having self-sacrificial character— Uh, then my whole life becomes evangelism. Sure does. Noreen, thanks so much for your call from Wyoming. Here is Frank in New Jersey listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Frank. What's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon. Uh, I've got kind of a hypothetical. Suppose a priest is elevating the host, puts it down, but then has a heart attack and dies. Can the Eucharistic minister give out the host as communion, or does the wine also have to be consecrated. Right. So if a priest dies in the middle of the Mass, the Church says that another priest needs to come and finish the Mass. Okay. So we, we, we complete the rite. All right. Very good. Frank, thanks so much for your call. It's a call to communion here on EWTN. Still a couple of lines open for you. A good time to you for you to call 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Betsy is listening in Detroit on the great Ave Maria radio. Hello, Betsy. Happy Friday to you. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, a couple of things. If I'm not mistaken, Dr. Anders has said in the past, as Catholics, we are called to live a life of virtue mm-hmm. in conformity with Christ. So my question is, if you are another faith, is the virtue different, or how do you divine virtue? And just on a second note, I was listening to yesterday when you talked about Alabama football team, and all I have to say is, go blue. (laughs) (laughs) I had a feeling that would come sooner or later, and you did it, Betsy. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, very good. Thank you so much. So uh, there's more than one way to answer the question about virtue and the virtues of Christians and non-Christians. So in a broad sense, uh, virtue is one, and it's one regardless of what tradition you're from, because virtue has to do with the perfection of the human person, and we all share a common human nature. 
So, you know, earlier in the show I said I've never met the culture that values cowardice, right? Because yeah. humans are humans wherever they are in the world, and, and, and bravery and courage tend to human flourishing, you know, whether you, whether you live in China or Japan or Korea or Africa or South America or North America, wherever, courage is a valuable thing. And so on with the other virtues. So whether that's justice or temperance or fortitude, you, you have it. I mean, most of the, the enumeration of the classical list of virtues comes into the Christian tradition from paganism through Greek philosophy and mm. Roman philosophy. Uh, and we recognize things as goods. They're goods because they're the goods of the human person. Now, um, when you talk about how can non-Christians participate in those virtues, <clears throat> we have two different ways. One of them is through the life of reason. And the good of the human person is the rational good of the human person. And insofar as we're rational, we can have a rational participation in the good of the human person. And um, that rational participation can, however, be with or without grace. And so you can find Christians and non-Christians alike that have a kind of semblance of virtue, you know, that may, they may be self-controlled and persevering and hardworking and diligent and have fortitude and so forth, um, and yet they lack charity. And, uh, and so while those natural qualities of excellence are admirable in a certain domain, I mean, you know, we might admire a CEO who's able to commit himself to, you know, building a magnificently successful financial empire or, you know, a civic leader or someone who, you know, in some natural way creates some natural good. We might appreciate that um, and recognize that there's something imitable, something valuable there, and yet it doesn't bring that person to eternal life. Because what's lacking is the is the grace of charity, which is a gift uh, that God grants, and so there's a more elevated way of participating in that life of virtue, and that's and that is through the gift of grace, which is just sharing in God's very nature, uh, that finds its 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 fullness, its culmination in charity. That is that self-sacrificial love that Christ had for the church, and uh, and that's when all those other natural virtues find their genuine fulfillment. When someone can have fortitude and temperance and justice and courage and perseverance but really put them at the service of the common good and the love of souls. Now, another question arises, do you have to be a card-carrying Catholic to have that participation in grace? It helps. <laughs> it helps, because in the Catholic Church, you have the Church's explicit teaching about grace and Christ and the means of grace that are the sacraments. So that's the most manifest, obvious, clear, and present way of living that life of grace. But the Church does teach that God makes the gift of grace available to everyone in a hidden way, a way known only to him. And so there are people outside the Catholic faith who will have more than merely natural virtue. They'll have supernatural virtue, but they may not consciously know the source of that virtue. But if they have it, they have it through the grace of Christ. Okay. Appreciate that. And thank you so much for your call, Betsy. We appreciate hearing from you in Detroit. It's called a communion here on EWTN. This weekend on Blessed to Play with Ron Meyer, our guest is going to be Shirley Souter. Uh, Shirley is a former collegiate swimmer at Penn State and a nutritionist. Shirley shares with Ron about working with people in need and the importance of her Catholic faith. Check it out. A great program, Blessed to Play with Ron Meyer, Sunday afternoon, 4.30 Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Here's a question now from Suzanne. What does Catechism 1367 mean when it says, quote, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice? Thanks. So the Council of Trent specifies the manner in which they are identical. And they're very specific about how they're identical. They are identical in species, but not in number. 
specifically but not numerically identical. What do I mean by that? The the same victim who died on the cross, mm-hmm. that would be Jesus, is present in the Mass. This is the first way. Okay. The same victim who died on the cross is present in the Mass. The same priest who offered the sacrifice on Calvary also offers the sacrifice of the Mass. That would be Jesus again. And the purpose of the sacrifice, namely to reconcile man to God, was present in the mind of the priest of Calvary and is also present in the mind of the priest of the Holy Mass. But they are not the same sacrifice numerically, meaning that the sacrifice of the Mass is numerically distinct from Calvary and can be offered for a specific intention. And each Mass can be for a different intention. That's why you can go to Mass on Monday and Father says, I'm offering this for, you know, John's grandmother. And he'd go on Mass on Tuesday and he says, I'm offering this Mass, you know, for the football team. And Wednesday, another Mass, another intention, yeah. right? And, uh, and so each individual Eucharist is a distinct rite of sacrifice, a distinct propitiation, a distinct oblation. That's the teaching of the Council of Trent. And yet, it's not disconnected from Calvary, because the same priest is there, the same victim is there, the same intent is there. And the power of the Mass, the fruit of the Mass, is, flows to us from the infinite merits of the sacrifice at Calvary. Now, there is a, there's a contemporary popular theory that is floating around— uh, that you will hear in catechetical circles uh, that I regard as dangerous, but it's very common. And it is the view that the Mass and Calvary are not just specifically the same, but numerically the same. And that that by going to Mass, one steps through a kind of uh, time portal and is mystically joined to the events at Calvary such that one is uh, truly, albeit mystically, present at the foot of the cross, and all one does is gaze upon the one sacrifice of, Cal- of Christ manifest at Calvary, and there is no distinct rite of sacrifice happening in the Mass. That, that view is called the mystical view of, of the relationship of the two, was specifically rejected by Pius XII in his encyclical Mediator Dei. But it doesn't matter that the Pope rejected it, lots of people still hold it. <laughs> and it gets it gets bandied about, and mm. I think out of the out, for for a good sincere reason, but bad but bad logic. Uh, some people teach that because they 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 want to be able to put to rest the Protestant complaint that we offer Christ over and over again, and by they go, well, no, we don't. We just offered him once. He's not offered again. He's just offered that one time. Well, that's that's Calvinism. That is the Calvinist view of the liturgy, right? And uh, and they think that by this. Well, I call it the time travel view of the mass <laughs> that they have that they've uh, uh, annulled the Protestant objection. But what they don't realize is they've actually just conceded the Calvinist view of the liturgy. The Catholic view is one sacrifice specifically, same priest, same victim, same intent, but numerically distinct offerings. Very good, uh, Suzanne. Thanks so much for your email. Uh, Shane is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Shane has a, a point of clarification. He says, on the note of a priest needing to complete the mass, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. the people will likely go about their lives until the next Sunday. So, does that mass count as gathering with the church for worship? Uh, does that f- would that fulfill your Sunday obligation? Yeah. Yeah. We're really splitting hairs here. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so, morally, would you be obligated to go seek out a second Mass? Um, like canonically, would you be obligated to? I have no idea what your canonical obligation would be, mm-hmm. right? But the rite of sacrifice is the completed Mass. Okay. Okay. So there you go. 
Shane, thanks for uh, checking us out today on YouTube. Sue is a first-time caller from Point Pleasant, New Jersey, listening on the great domestic church media. Sue, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Andrews. Thanks for taking my call. I have a question regarding the Petron office and history and whether or not there has been an instance of a pope sitting, uh, you know, a person sitting in the seat of Peter and teaching error. Yeah, great. I appreciate the question. So it depends on uh, some qualifications, how we conceive of teaching error. Um, the, church teach, the church says that a pope can never formally define error, right? The pope cannot make a formal declaration and say all Catholics must, you know, because this has been revealed by God, believe the following and then teach something false. That, that's never happened, okay? However, popes can personally be in error, and they can even foment and facilitate error, and they can, by, say, subscribing to ambiguous formulae, or even, or even holding in their own private opinions erroneous, uh, erroneous thoughts that they, may, that, might, that might push as matters of policy, without actually formally defining them. And I'll give you a few examples historically of when that's happened. So uh, probably the most egregious example I can think of would be John XXII, who was a 14th century pope, who personally believed in the doctrine of soul sleep or psychopanachia. That's, that's the belief that the just do not experience the vision of God immediately upon death. Um, and uh, he was favorable to that opinion, and he wanted others to hold it, and he he favored, uh, say, Episcopal appointments and curial appointments, uh, those that would that would go along with him in that era, even though the University of Paris and the leading theologians of the day, most of the bishops, were against him. What what John the Twenty Second never did was formally define the dogma of as a dogma, uh, the doctrine of psychopanachia. He never said all Catholics must agree with this on pain of heresy, and this is what God has revealed. He never said that. Right? He was personally wrong. And before the end of his life, he recanted his error, and he came back in line with the traditional teaching. And, then, and the subsequent pope, the very next pope, who was Benedict XII, published a papal bull called Benedictus Deus, where he formally defined the dogma of the beatific vision, so nobody w would ever fall into John XXII's error again. Um, some other celebrated examples would be Honorius, Pope Honorius, uh, who lived during the monothelite controversy. And uh, while, again, he never formally defined monothelitism, he gave a lot of cover to monothelitism, because mm -hmm. he was trying to uh, to, uh, to, uh, to to bridge uh, the split the gulf um, between the monophysites and the and the uh, and the Chalcedonian Church. Um, another example would be Pope Honorius. Not no, I said Honorius. Pope Liberius during the Arian controversy um, would uh, would subscribe to deliberately ambiguous doctrinal statements that kind of temporized between. Um, Arianism and, and the Orthodox position, again, out of a sort of a misplaced desire to, you know, bring disparate parties together using ambiguous formula. And so he's not regarded very highly. He didn't stand up articulately for the truth. You know, he sort of fudged things to deliberately be confusing. Um, and so you have periods of history where popes will do that kind of stuff. What they never did, those fellows, was stand up and formally define a dog as a dogma something that was erroneous. So when the fathers of the First Vatican Council, who 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 defined the dogma of papal infallibility, they were perfectly well aware of Liberius, Honorius, and John the Twenty Second. They they understood that these things had happened in history, and so they were very very careful the way they thread that needle, the way they explained papal infallibility. It really is a pretty high bar. The gift of infallibility comes into play only when the when the Pope 
intends to define a matter of faith and practice, declaring it to have been revealed by God and necessary for all Christians to believe on pain of heresy. And that, that happens very rarely in Catholic history. All right. Sue, thanks so much uh, for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Lisa is listening in Pittsburgh on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Lisa. What's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for taking my phone call. I have a question. I have an evangelical friend who recommended I listen to a third evangelical person in broadcast that this is the year of the Jubilee year, and it's only the 70th Jubilee year since Joshua led the Israelites to the Promised Land. And the last time there was a Jubilee year, it was the Yom Kippur War, so all sorts of terrible things are going to happen this year. And then I came across the Catholic Church of Jubilee years in 2025, and if Jubilee is 50 years, how could it only be 70? And it's just very confusing. So I'm hoping Dr. Andrews can um, clarify. Yeah, I have absolutely no idea how your evangelical friend's preacher is reckoning the uh, the eschatological timeline. I no clue, all right? And uh, But what I do know, and I, I used to live in the evangelical world— is that evangelicals, dispensationalists especially, are always coming up with wild theories about about time and history uh-huh. that are allegedly based on some rendering of biblical history um, to which they tie all kinds of spiritual significance. And so they're always predicting some apocalypse or some end-of-the-world prophecy or some cataclysm or some war or some great revival. I mean, uh-huh. it's just, they're, they're a dime a dozen in evangelicalism and have been for quite a long time. And what what I have found, first of all, is there is no explicit teaching in Scripture or tradition or anywhere that says this is the way we should reckon our experience of time. I mean, so this this is just utter poppycock. I mean, they just guys just making this up, just pulling it out of his head, out of whole cloth, right? It's just it's just a theory he's got, right? There's no basis for this. Um, and uh, and the the history of this kind of date setting apocalypticism is awful. All of these guys are always wrong. Every attempt to to predict the future based on some allegedly you know biblical prophetic timeline has failed miserably, and and keeps on failing miserably. And yet we keep trying it over and over and over again, right? And the Catholic tradition a long time ago said that is not the way to interact with time. That's not the way to think about biblical history. Uh, the the Catholic position was articulated by Saint Augustine of Hippo in around the year 400 in his massive tome City of God. And Augustine basically says, look, um, the, the, the people who have wanted to be on board with God, there have been those folks since the beginning of time. Folks that have opposed God and his work, they've been around since the beginning of time. He calls mm-hmm. the one group the city of God, the other the city of man. He says they've been in conflict. And, and, and prophetic history and apocalyptic literature in the New Testament basically describes what is a perennial state of war in the spiritual realm wow. between the righteous and the wicked— and so you can always look to, say, these Antichrist characters in the New Testament or in the book of Revelation and go, yeah, that looks like such a political leader. <laughs> and it, it will in the next generation, too. Sure, like, there's, sure. there's somebody like that in every generation. There's someone who opposes the church or the work of God or the people of God. or you know, uh, uh, you, you, You're going to find that in every generation. It's why it's so easy to do this game. Right, because the scriptures are vague and ambiguous and use figurative and symbolic language, and it's broad enough that you can always find some likely candidate to peg with the title Antichrist, and uh, and you'll seem persuasive until that guy dies and the next generation arises and oh, this is this one's the real Antichrist, you know, and just keeps on <laughs> going until Jesus comes back. Yeah. Hey, Lisa, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. Here's a question now from Rosa, who says, "What is the difference between purgatory, Hades, 
and Limbo. And does Limbo and Hades still exist today? I only hear about heaven, hell, and purgatory. I know that heaven and hell are permanent, and if one goes to purgatory, one will eventually reach heaven. But what about Hades and Limbo? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, with Limbo, there are two different Limbos in Catholic theology. There's what we call uh, the Limbus of the Fathers, and this is a matter of Catholic dogma. Uh Limbus of the Fathers was the place that the righteous dead of the Old Covenant went as they awaited the coming of Christ. The Limbus of the Fathers is now empty because Jesus came. Okay. Right? So it doesn't pertain anymore. Um, Then there was uh, Limbo properly, the way we usually use the term. And Limbo, the way it's usually used, was a theological theory— It was never a dogma of the Church. It was a theory articulated especially by Thomas Aquinas to to explain what happens to the souls of unbaptized infants. And the theory went like this. The theory was, well, you need to have sanctifying grace from baptism in in order to be saved, Mm -hmm. but you need to have actual sin in order to deserve hell. And unbaptized infants have neither. They neither have the grace of baptism, nor do they have any actual sin so they can't go to heaven and they can't go to hell. Where are we going to put them? We'll put them in limbo, right? And limbo would be a place not of the beatific vision, but of merely natural happiness. Imagine, say, eternity in a Caribbean hotel, right? Mm. That sort of thing. Okay. And uh, and it logically, you can see how that functioned, right? Problem with that doctrine of limbo is it has absolutely no basis in divine revelation. Ooh. It's just a, it's a speculative theory to account for an ambiguity. And so the position of the modern magisterium is that limbo is just that, a, 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 theory, a theory, and that it's, it's better to presume the salvation of the unbaptized infant on the grounds of God's universal will to save and the offer of grace to everyone. Rosa, thanks so much uh, for your email. Dr. David Anders, have a great weekend. Thanks, Tom. We hope everybody has a great weekend. Be sure to join us on Monday for another edition of Call to Communion. As mentioned earlier, it'll be a mailbag program as we uh, celebrate and honor the life of the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We'll be back with a live show on Tuesday. Looking forward to that. On behalf of our great team here, that would be uh, Charles and Matt and Rich. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next time right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great weekend. God bless.